This is Radiate, the podcast that celebrates life and shines a light on life-restoring stories of organ, tissue, and eye donors, recipients, and information you need to know about donation. Welcome back to Radiate. This is episode 19. I'm Audrey Coleman, your host. Thank you for joining us today. On August 2nd, 1997, in Buffalo, New York, 16-year-old Tom Mock took his father's motorcycle out for a ride. It was late in the evening, about 10 p.m. and dark. He was struck by a car and suffered non-survivable injuries. He never regained consciousness. Tom died less than two weeks before his 17th birthday. More than a 1,000 miles away in Tampa, Florida, Pete Radigan lay critically ill in a hospital bed with a serious heart condition. His only hope for recovery was a donated heart. Pete received his heart, Tom's heart. Today, 24 years later, Tom's mother, Janet, and Pete are celebrating the release of a book they co-authored called From Tragedy to Triumph, The Story of Tom's Heart. Pete is here today to share his own organ transplant story and to talk about young Tom, his donor, and the close relationship he and Tom's family have formed. I want to say that the first thing I would like to say about this book is that I, it's what I would certainly call a page turner. It, it is so compelling um, in both its style and its substance. Um, I really found myself not wanting to put it down um, as I began reading. So congratulations, first of all, on getting it published, because I'm guessing that there are probably not too many books out there in the marketplace that are co-authored by a donor family member and their loved one's recipient. Is, is that correct, Pete? From what I've been able to benchmark, and I never like to speak in definitives, uh, but from the benchmarking that, that I did myself, uh, there are books written by donor families. There are books written by recipients. There was even a recent book, a Netflix movie of a donor father that wrote, that met the recipient of a, his son's lungs hmm. and wrote a book from dual perspective, but it was from the donor family that wrote it. This book, uh, Tragedy to Triumph, the story of Tom's heart, is unique in that it was written from the dual perspective, paralleling timelines in an incredibly powerful way that talked about what went on with my organ donor, Tom Mock, and the tragedy that struck his family and the strength that his family had at the worst moment of their life and their ability to provide the decision that ultimately gave me uh, the gift of life. In addition to that, it showed what was going on with me as I went into end-stage heart failure and the impact on me, my family, my friends, uh, and then some of the healing that can take place when donor families and recipients meet. And I know Reg and I have talked about this many times, and he's an advocate of donor families and recipients when appropriate by having the opportunity to meet as well. So this book is powerful in that it has that unique dual perspective 
and also talks about the power of collaborative speaking for organ and tissue donation that truly enables you to put a name, a face, and a personality with donation and transplantation. I'd like to ask you if you could just share with us uh, the story of how you learned that you would need a heart transplant. Well, the way my story uh, began and, and what put me in this situation in the first place, I, I don't know if the viewers are familiar with Houston Intercontinental Airport. I do training and development by trade. So I write teaching programs for adults, and then I go travel around the country and teach them. Well, I was in Houston Airport, which if you know anything about it, it's shaped like a great big capital H. And I was in the bottom left of the H and had to transfer all the way on the top right of the H. I give you context because I had my training bag. I was 30 years old and it should have taken me 10 minutes, but it took me 45, 50 minutes to walk what should have taken 10 minutes. You see, I was walking the gate or two and was completely winded. I, um, I was embarrassed. I said to myself, how did I get so out of shape so fast? Mm -hmm. note, going to the gym when I get back, going to get back in shape. And I traveled that distance, got to California, and I taught a four-day management training program in end-stage heart failure. My legs, which were, my, my wife would affectionately say, it's like chicken legs. Mm. It swelled about four times the size um, to the point that it looked like my legs from the knees down were in a perpetual state of sweating. Pete, I, I, I'm sorry for, for interrupting you here, but I just have to ask. So, so when you were in the airport, was that your first recollection of having any sort of um, issue going on? I mean, prior to that, had you felt that anything was going on with you? That was the first time. And honestly, I felt clammy. Mm -hmm. I said, man, just what I need, teaching a four-day management training program, and I'm getting the flu. Mm -hmm. So I taught, I literally taught this way for three and a half days. I taught for two hours, stopped for 20 minutes, went in the office, fell sound asleep. The other instructor woke me up at 20 minutes. I taught for two and a half hours, broke for an hour for lunch, slept for an hour, and did that for four days. Meanwhile, my, my, by the second day, my feet, I had to teach with my shoes off because my feet had swelled so bad and they hurt so bad that I couldn't do it. At the end of four days, I called my uh, boss and I said, Marion, I don't know what's going on, but I'm not well. So I don't know when I'll be back in, but I'll let you know what was going on. Fast forward, I had a direct flight back to New Jersey the next morning. I was immediately sent to the pulmonologist and uh, I had to get a wheelchair. They had to wheel me up because I couldn't walk. Mm -hmm. Couldn't put weight on my feet. It was excruciating. Uh, the pulmonologist called my primary care and immediately entered me into Princeton Medical Center in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, Audrey, I, I have four sisters. Sorry, no correlation to why I needed a transplant. 
but I had four sisters that, uh, and mom and dad average about five, eight, five, nine. And two doctors that are about five foot nothing come into the room and they're surrounded. And they said, Pete, we know what the problem is. Uh, you're in end stage heart failure. That had been such a blow just to hear that. Well, it's not the thing you want to hear when you're 30 years old. Yeah, of course not. But I had put myself through college and worked in a pharmacy most of my adolescent life. So I knew people that had heart failure, took medication, and then went on with my life. So I asked a question that the answer of which was, no, you don't understand, three times in a row. The first question was, okay, what medication do I take? I'll just be careful and I'll go on with my life. Mm -hmm. And they said, no, you don't understand. We're going to send you to New York Presbyterian Medical Center to evaluate you to see if you're a candidate for a heart transplant. But if you don't get a heart transplant, you're going to die. Wow. Well, there was a collective gas for my family. Oh, sure. But I don't want to sound cavalier, but I'm kind of a realist. So I said, okay, not the best news in the world, but if I got to go through a heart transplant, schedule a surgery, let's get it over. And they said, no, you don't understand. Again, we're going to send you up to New York to evaluate you to see if we're going to be able to give you one. So I said, well, wait a minute. Didn't you just say that if I don't get a heart transplant, I'm going to die? And now you're telling me you're going to evaluate me to see if you're going to give me one? Well, I wasn't going to go down that road. Hmm. And so a few weeks later, I was put on diuretic to drain, start to drain the fluid. And I went up there and I met Dr. Donna Mancini. Really, I owe my life to. Uh, she pulled out all the stops. I was in the hospital for four and a half weeks. And, um, and this was in New York, is that correct? New York, yes. Okay. Uh -huh. At uh, Columbia University in New York. And... I was, when I met Dr. Mancini, um, without getting too medical in terms, when you're in end-stage heart failure, Audrey, they do what is called a heart catheterization. Mm -hmm. And the purpose is to bring the pressures down around the heart, because otherwise, if they did a transplant, the transplant would fail. There are a lot of technical reasons for that. Just safe, suffice to say, they had to get the pressures down mm -hmm. with the patient. Okay. Five cardiac catheterizations over four weeks, and they couldn't get the pressure down. Mm -hmm. They were going to do one more, and if they couldn't do the pressures down, they were just going to make me comfortable for as long as I was able to live at that point. And so, you know, for me, it was pretty simple. I was going to have the transplant, and I was either going to wake up from the transplant with a new lease on life, thanks to a donor family, or I wasn't going to wake up, in which case I wouldn't feel anything and I'd be gone and in a better place. Mm -hmm. So either way, I'd be in a better place. But I come from a really big, big Irish Catholic family. I have four sisters, 25 cousins, 110 second cousins. Oh, wow. Mom's side. And never had we lost anybody. We hadn't even lost my grandmother who was 97 at the time, to uh, anything. And so what I went through was really nothing compared to the impact 
that this had on my family because they had to watch their only son wither away before their eyes, not be able to do anything mm -hmm. by the grace of God and having a family at the worst moment of their life, make a decision to save my life. But that little step is what brought me to end stage heart failure. So, so how, what was that time frame? Tell us what that time frame was from the time that you learned your diagnosis until the time you were placed on the waiting list. And then from the time you were placed on the waiting list to the time you received the transplant. So I went into end stage heart failure in January of 1996. Uh, after the final catheterization, where the pressures went down, because um, they ended up doing that uh, fifth, catheter, sixth catheterization, and the pressures came down. It worked. And it worked. And I was released uh, what is called status two, which means I was on the waiting list, but I was not among the most sick in the nation. Mm -hmm. stable and outside the hospital. So I was still accruing waiting time, but I was not among the most sick. And the, and the organs should go to those people that are most sick. First. Right. That is, the, that's, that is the way the waiting list works, is that the sickest people or sickest patients are at the top of the list. That's correct. Mm -hmm. So I, was, I waited outside the hospital for a year and a quarter until April of 1997. Mm -hmm. And I had a little bit of a cough. I was taking 35 pills a day to maintain, mm -hmm. to be stable. Mm -hmm. But I was feeling good. I had a little bit of a cough. I went into my local doctor's office and she said, Dr. Coslow said, Dr. Mancini wants to talk to you. And she said, Pete, I think it's time we elevate you to status one among the most sick and bring you into the hospital full time. Well, that must have been confusing for you, though, if you were feeling better um, to to have then be moved to this more critical status. Was that was that confusing? Was that? Um... Um, I can't speak for other people, but for Dr. Donna Mancini is amazing. And most transplant doctors, physicians are miracle workers. Dr. Mancini had gained every ounce of trust that there was no way I was going to question her logic. Oh, of course. She felt I had to go into the hospital, then it was time for me to go in the hospital. Mm -hmm. As it turned out, I went in April 17th, and my health crashed and burned six weeks later. Wow. And I was in the coronary care unit twice between the end of May and August when I was transplanted. As a matter of fact, they actually were talking about having to put a left ventricular assist device, a device to assist my heart, because they didn't know if I was going to make the weight. Mm. So that that brought me in the timeline. And, you know, it's kind of depressing when you're on the same floor of the same hospital. You can't leave. Everybody's got to come to you, you know, and... I celebrated my 32nd birthday. In the hospital. You know, I couldn't walk 20 feet hmm. uh, without getting out of breath. But um, then the end of July, the last week in July, 
you, you wouldn't believe it. If I told you, you wouldn't believe it who came in, popped into my room. He wasn't famous then, but Dr. Mehmet Oz, ah. Dr. Oz show, mm-hmm. came in and he was scheduled to do my transplant. Oh, okay. And he talked, talked with me and my father who was visiting. My family raced up the New Jersey Turnpike because, um, as you know, everything in New Jersey is off the Jersey Turnpike. <laughs> I don't know Jersey, but so, we, so they raced up the New Jersey Turnpike, and you know, just to set the scene for what it was like then, Audrey, mm-hmm. your hospital becomes family. When I got put on the stretcher and I was wheel, being wheeled down to OR for the transplant surgery, I came out of the room to a resounding standing ovation from security guards that were on a first name basis to food service, to residents, to blood technicians, to doctors. And I I was crying. And my mom said, what's the matter, Pete? I said, it just dawned on me that I'm going down for a transplant and somebody just lost their life. Um, and I was reminded, I didn't have the advice at the time, but a donor family that I knew years later uh, who lost their daughter uh, gave me some great advice. Um, he said, Pete, my daughter did not die to become an organ donor. As a result of what happened, which you had no control over, I was given the opportunity and the choice, the gift, but my daughter did not die to become an organ donor. And so there was that guilt at the time, Audrey, of going down thinking somebody had to die so that I could live. And I I remember to this day going down to the OR and I had had a micro cassette recorder because this is 1997. They had cassette recorders back then. And I had made a recording message for my mom and dad, respectively, my four sisters. I was joking with everybody. I had the nurses, the doctors in stitches, telling jokes the whole night because I wanted this to be less of an impact for them. And I went in, uh, right as I was being wheeled in, I called my father over. I said, this does not mean I'm not going to survive. But I want you to wait 20 minutes and I want you to play this for the family. And uh, the message at the end of each message was, I'll see you when I get out. And I got in, got on the operating table. The IVs were connected. And about 20 minutes later, the nurse came in and said, Pete, we're sorry, but the heart was damaged. And we're uh, not going to be able to do the transplant tonight. And so I had about 20 seconds worth of self-pity until I walked out in the room and I saw the dried up tears on my sister's faces and my mom and dad. And I said to them, hey, let's get some pizza. I got to be close to your top of the list. Now, my pizza was going to make them in some way feel better. But then fast forward a week, I was with my father again and I got the call from a transplant coordinator that said people may have found 
a potential organ donor. <clears throat> and then I got the heart that I got today. Incredible. Incredible. So how long were you, how did that go then? So you, you said a week later is when you received the call that there was a healthy heart, what was believed to be a healthy heart for you. So tell us about that. What was that, um, what was going on at the time that you got that call? I was just sitting there talking with my father and uh, I got the call and said, Mary, Pete, it's Mary, Mary Donovan. And I said, hi, Mary, well, you're working late because I was always harassing the nurses in a, in a nice way. And she said, yeah, well, listen, I can't talk. We think we may have found a potential donor for you. I'll call you back in 30 minutes. I'm <clears throat> up. And so I was left sitting there with the phone in my hand. Right. I said to my father, um, I think I'm going in for the transplant. And my father immediately got on the phone. And I went down and Dr. Robert Mishler ended up doing my uh, surgery. And he and I knew each other because we were on ABC News Turning Point the year before mm -hmm. uh, to do an expose on transplant. And um, he, it was, it was great. I, I, I have a funny anecdote to the story though. Tell us. Dr. Mishler is uh, apparently, <clears throat> according to my mom and my sisters, one of the hottest transplants <laughs> ever. And so my my mom and, and sisters fought to got her, who, did, who got to be closest to hear the message when I came out of surgery. So, um, you know, it was good. And Dr. Mitchell was great. It was a perfect match. And, uh, you know, 24 years later, uh, I try to take really good care of this heart. I had the transplant on August 5th of 97, and I was back at work full-time December 1st. Incredible. Because of how active I am, I'm now 24 and a half years later, and I'm still doing really well. That is incredible and, and, and fantastic as well. You know, at this point, I would, I would really love to ask um, Tom's mom, Jan, to tell us a little bit about Tom. Um, I, I know that she was she wanted to, but was unable to be with us today. So, Pete, I was wondering if you can give us a little bit of tell us a little bit about what you know about your donor, Tom Mock. So I thought, Audrey, if with your permission, it would be beneficial to use Jan's own words in a couple of excerpts from the book. Oh, that would be fantastic. That, that'd be great. So this is a quote from uh, the night lost her son, just to give you an idea of what she was going through from a donor family perspective. Uh, and then maybe Reg can uh, uh, can fill in any gaps okay. you may know of. So during the evening at the hospital, uh, my sisters and brothers who lived out of the area tried to fathom the unbelievable and the inevitable as they attempted to console me. Friends sat in the waiting room offering prayers and support. Finally, at 10 p.m., I decided to go home and attempt to get some sleep. I had been up for 44 hours, Tim said. Tim was Jen's other son. I want to spend the night with Tom. His paternal grandmother also planned on staying. So feeling confident of her presence, I left. As I entered my home, my neighbors had delivered breakfast food for the next day. 
It was a welcome sight. The phone calls did not stop. I tried to physically regroup so I could get some sleep as I knew I would need as much physical rest as possible to get through the coming days. I knew since Tom would not be responding and his life nearing the end, I would attempt to get a good night's sleep as my thoughts forged ahead to funeral preparations. After waking up the next day, I stayed in contact with the staff at TICU. I started planning the funeral service and contacted those individuals who would participate. Later that day, I spoke with the TICU nurse around 2 p.m. who reported a breathing test had been performed and another breathing test would be performed much later. So even though I was busy making funeral arrangements, I knew I had time to return before Tom was pronounced dead. Due to multiple interruptions, my sister and I left home later than planned, became lost en route and parked in the wrong parking area. Tom's father had been attempting to contact me unsuccessfully to inform us that Tom had been pronounced brain dead at 4.03 p.m. following the second breathing test. This was before cell phones. As my sister and I arrived, we were still unaware that Tom had been pronounced dead. As we entered the hallway to the TICU, we were welcomed by anxious relatives, friends, and the minister. Tom's father was extremely relieved to see me and sadly broke the news of Tom's pronouncement of death. We then answered questions, signed consents for organ donation, as well as talk with the minister about the funeral arrangements. How can a mother fathom that her son is dead? He still looked alive as I entered the room to say goodbye as the sounds of the respirator kept his chest rising and falling. His skin was pink in color and he was warm to the touch, but I cognitively knew he was brain dead. I put my arms around him one last time amidst the tubes and respirator. I said, Tom, I love you and I'm glad God chose me to be your mother. As I started to cry, I will miss you a lot. I console myself by knowing he was safe, alive in heaven, his death a mercy of God, and I would see him again. I could never wish, back, wish him back in his present physical state. I struggled with believing it and knowing he would no longer be with us on earth, which was heart-wrenching. The next day as I awoke, awoke, I lay there trying to believe the unbelievable. I wrestled between not accepting it and compelling my mind to assimilate its truth as I repeated, Tom is dead, Tom is dead. I tried to force the appalling reality in the hope of allowing it to penetrate as tears ran down, ran down my face. My heart literally hurt it was all too much to bear. On that day, August 5th, the paper read, motorcyclist dies of injuries. It did not, however, mention that lives were saved due to organ, tissue, and eye donations, which would come much later. I focused instead on my belief that he was alive in heaven. As I read the obituary in the newspaper the next day, August 6th, I stared in disbelief. This can't be, he's too young. 
Maybe someone will tell me this is a bad dream, but no one ever did. And yet I momentarily forgot his wish. If anything happens to me, I want to donate my organs so others will live. Organ donation would be Tom's legacy, his request fulfilled, and honor bestowed as four lives were saved, enhanced, or healed. I would never know how far-reaching his decision would be until I met Tom's heart recipient, Pete Radigan. So those are just some of the very emotional um, parts of Jan. And I know she wished she could have been here. Of course, and we, we wish she, she could have as well. And we certainly understand her not being able to be here. Um, but this is an example of just the um, incredible honesty and um, forthrightness with which Jan writes in the book and shares the story of, of Tom. So I really um, encourage our, our, our listeners to, to read the book so that they can get even more detail. It gives you some really, really good insight into um, Tom as a person, um, that, that he was far more than someone who had an accident on a motorcycle. There was far more to him as a person. And, and Jan shares that beautifully in, in the book. Um, how did you and Jan meet? When we, when we met, um, we, we first met uh, via a letter that I wrote about two months after my transplant. I had wrote it, given, gave it to uh, my transplant coordinator, and they forwarded it up to Upstate New York Transplant Services, which is now Connect Life in, the, in New York. And uh, it went, it kind of got a little bit shuffled around and Jan received it in uh, August the following year. Almost, she got called actually on the anniversary date to say there was a letter for, from <clears throat> the heart recipient. And as the book catalogs all of those letters, it was the beginning of communication between Jan and I multiple times, Jan and my mom and dad, Jan and my sisters, up until a year and a half to the day after my transplant, I was doing a training program in Toronto, New York, and Jan lives in uh, Niagara Falls. And she drove an hour north with her friend, Kathy, and we met for the first time up there in uh, the hotel that I was staying at. And I'm sorry, and tell me again, how, how far out from your transplant was that? Exactly. One year and a half. One year a and a half. No. So, so tell us about that meeting. How, how was that? Well, you know, you have no idea how many emotions can coexist at one time mm. until you're looking into the eyes of the mother lost a child whose heart is beating inside your chest. There, there are so many emotions coexisted mm -hmm. at the same time. We embraced for about 20 minutes. And that's not even a little exaggeration. Mm -hmm. When we released it, 
I, I don't know what made me think of this, but I said to her, would you like to hear the heartbeat? And on the back of the book, uh, there's a picture of uh, Jan with her head on my chest, listening to Tom's heart beating, uh, giving me life. And ironically, my class found out the restaurant where we were having dinner. So she got to meet my whole class. Yeah. But it was it was nice. It was, it was nice. And her friend Kathy has the gift of gab. <laughs> when, when you're trying to find words, and sometimes there, there's no need for words. Yes. But she helped uh, also with that meeting. So that was sort of the beginning of a really, you know, a very close relationship that you now have with that family. Yes. And, you know, not only did we meet, Jen visited me here in Tampa. She stayed with us. Um, not all meetings with donor families are, are as intimate as the relationship that I've had. Um, but, you know, she calls, she calls herself the second grandmother mm. for my son. And, um, and she was at my wedding. So, so Pete, so yes. And at the time that you received your, tr- your transplant, were you married then? No. So since your transplant, you've gotten married. You also are a father. Yeah. So uh, dating was very challenging. <laughs> and I, I, I joke about it because when you're a heart transplant recipient, you're completely normal health-wise. Mm-hmm. Yes, you have a heart transplant, but you're completely healthy. Mm-hmm. But when you're dating somebody or, or dating a, someone that you care for or developing feelings for, at what point when you met them, do you tell them you had a heart transplant? Mm-hmm. You can be the most cavalier person in the world, but you know, a heart transplants a big is a big deal. Well, I met my wife. She, uh, I, I said to her, "Listen, I want to tell you something." Because I, I had met a woman before, and I was waiting for the right time to bring it up. Mm-hmm. She got upset with me that I didn't tell her. So when I met my wife, I actually said to her, I need to tell you something. When we met and we were hitting it off and everything, and she said, you're married? I said, no, no, not married. She said, I said, I had a heart transplant. And she said, can I see it? And I, I was somewhat taken aback. Wasn't the, the, the response we were expecting all that? No, and I... It took me a minute to register what she was asking. And she was asking to see the, the scar. Uh-huh. And I said, um, sure. And so I showed it to her and she leaned over and gave me a kiss right on the top of the, of the scar. That's sweet. I knew at that moment, as a matter of fact, that night I called my mom and I said, I met the woman I'm gonna marry. And that's a, that's a true story. And how long after that were you married? Um, we were married by a good friend of us, or ours who's a judge, uh, four months later. And I met, and we were married in the Catholic Church the following night. And your son, how old is your son? 
My son just turned 14 last week. He is unbelievable. He's six foot three, 215 pounds. Wow. And the doctors are saying he's going to be six five to six nine. Oh my gosh. You know, an anecdotal story about my son's birth. I called my family first, and I'm really close to my cousin Tom McIntyre. And when uh, when we had Peter, that's my son's name, mm-hmm. um, I called my family. And then the next person I called was Jan to tell her that uh, we had a baby boy. And she said, that's great. What did you name him? I said, Peter Thomas Radigan. And there was a pause on the line. And I thought, I was like, did I say something? She said, did you do that on purpose? And it dawned on me that I had inadvertently named my son after my organ donor. Your, your Tom's name is was Peter Thomas? Radigan. Wow. And I said to her, she said, did you do that on purpose? And I said to her, Jen, I wish I could tell you I did it on purpose. All I can tell you is God truly works in mysterious ways. Oh. Oh, that must have been so powerful for her. Yeah. Especially. Yeah. So that's kind of how my story came along and, and, you know, why we think this is so incredibly powerful. So, Pete, it's been... It has been 24 years, as we've said more than once here. So did you ever consider writing a book um, solo prior to this? Or how, how did how did this whole project come about? Well, you and I have known each other for, um, man, it has to be almost 20 years. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So from when I did uh, training work with the Oregon Recovery Organization. Mm-hmm. And... I have always been a proponent, as you know, of not speaking from one perspective or the other. Yes. And it's like putting salt on the table without the pepper. You really wouldn't do that. You put both. And so we've always been an advocate of donor families and recipients meeting. So when I first, one of the first conversations that I had with Jen on the phone was either the first or second conversation. We really struck accord, hit it off. And I I jokingly made a comment. I said, I was telling her about the work I did for TSI. And I said, it would really be powerful if you ever felt the ability to do so. If we were ever to write down what happened to us. And that was 24 years ago. And I never, ever put pressure on Jen to write this book, but I never wanted to write it on my own. Mm-hmm. We wrote it together, we didn't write it at all. <clears throat> I wrote my section of the book 22 years ago. Really? Jen, and I sent it to Jen. Jen, 20 year anniversary, was so excited. She called me up for weeks ahead of Christmas four years ago. And she said, did you get the box? Did you get my Christmas present yet? I said, no, no, what is it? You'll see, you're gonna like it. I said, come on, Jane, what is it? She said, really, you'll, you'll see. And it was a binder where she had written her whole section. 
out. That was two years ago. And then, you know, maybe transition over to Jim because uh, Jim's not, never made it back on. Jim McGrath, who I went to college with, undergrad with, and we wrote together on the college newspaper. He was a roommate of mine and a fraternity brother of mine. Jim took this mountainous um, amount of paper and journal and raw feelings that was literally all over the place and pulled it together in a cohesive story. We were talking to a reporter uh, earlier in the week about this very subject. He said, I put it in order. I put it into a sequence, but I didn't feel it was so, in Jim's words, he said it was so incredibly emotional that I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And I mean that in a positive way when I signed on for this. I literally, he said, I literally had to stop at times because I became overwhelmed with the sheer emotion of what I was dealing with in the content. But I couldn't take it out, he said, because I, I didn't feel I had the right to pull back something that was emotional to Jan or to Pete. Mm-hmm. So, but because he was able to structure what we had written, Jen and I were able to spend the next two years, year and a half, editing into the version that we have today. So I know that, Pete, I know that you are a, you know, as as we said, you're clearly an advocate. You have been for for years. Um, And and I believe you advocate for... um, for there to be um, easy, easily accessible information about donation in the public square and in, in schools. So you mentioned having the book um, maybe that, that students could read. Have you, do you have any, any plans for how you might um, introduce the book to schools or um, for, for schools who might hear this podcast and think, you know, this would be great. In, in Arkansas, for instance, um, all high schools are required to discuss organ donation um, in their driver's license or health classes. Um, so every student in Arkansas should be receiving some sort of information about um, organ donation. And we do receive um, requests from schools around the state asking us to either come in and make a presentation to them or to share with them some information that they can also share with their students. So, you know, it would be it would be great if there are, are, are more and more states like Arkansas that have that sort of requirement. But for those that do or that or those that don't, have you thought about any um, processes for maybe getting the, the book introduced to schools? Yeah. So all schools today or most schools, there might be some few, a few exceptions that require funding support in the inner city. Mm-hmm. But most schools today, including the inner city, require uh, kids for certain classes. They have a list of supplies they need for school. And some of those includes for English books for English and uh, just little purchases that they need to make. So 
what I what I propose is that you start with one school, one class, and then this book is the catalyst behind providing the dual perspective. So in the event you can't get a speaker out there, you have a book that provides a perspective. And I just truly believe, and I have not met a teacher today that is not interested in education around anatomy or health education that do not want this type of information. They need help. And so I'd like to see a, in my mind's eye down the road because 20% of the proceeds from the, from the book were earmarking to Donate Life America for the purpose of, my vision is to create an educational portal that will enable sh information sharing, but specifically to create a learning program or that would tie learning on organ and tissue donation to the book, to the OPO for speakers. So the experience is you learn about organ and tissue donation, you're tested on organ and tissue donation by quiz, you read a book, the teacher is able to discuss it in class to drive it home. The teacher reaches out to the organ procurement organization or the organ recovery organization, requests a speaker, and then you put a name and a face and a personality to round out the curriculum. Mm -hmm. It's not anything different than what you all, what people like yourself are doing today anyway. And schools get these, get paid, get digital copies of these books that they can get for pennies on the dollar. So, so there is, there will be a possibility that schools and, and other organizations, other OPOs, for instance, who might be interested in your book, is there a way that they can get the book and, and have it available for their uh, recipients and donor family members and, and staff members, as well as um, kids in schools? Yes. Reach out to me at contact at tragedytotriumph.net or if your viewers reach out to you, you can direct them to me uh, and give them my, my contact information. I can take care of bulk uh, ordering. Uh, I, can, I can obtain books for those places that just are unable to acquire it because of a lack of budget. I don't want the inability to buy this book to be a deterrent from using the book. Absolutely. Is more important than the dollar. This is not about money for me. This is about utilizing the book in a way that will have transformational change into what I call Generation Next. So here we are, Pete, 24 years later. What's good about your life now? Oh, everything. <laughs> you know, I, I, I often affectionately tell people, I wish everybody had to go through transplant, not because they for the surgery, but for their perspective. Mm -hmm. I mean, you really don't have any bad days anymore. You know, there's nothing so bad. You know, although COVID rivaled bad, but there's nothing so bad that I can't find a way to get through. And so perspective, 
the ability to see my son grow up. I've coached him since he was a kid in basketball. Now he's a high school freshman, potentially starting varsity. I I met my, the love of my life. I got married. I never would have gotten married, never would have had a child. Um, you know, never would have seen my nieces and nephews grow up. And never would have had this opportunity to really um, make a difference. And, you know, it dawned on me a couple of weeks ago, or actually in August, when we were getting ready for the release of this book, Jen and I both kind of had the epiphany. You know, transplant recipients are always so unbelievably thankful to donor families for providing the gift of life. Mm -hmm. I've been given the ability to create an everlasting gift, which is a legacy of Tom in writing. So Jen and I both agree. And somebody said, why did you write this book? I think Jen and I's answer is the same. It allows us to leave a legacy of, a, the, of Tom's heart and everything that he did for so many people. And it's my way to say thank you. And so that's why I've been so passionate to pulling so many people together to try to really make a difference because I'm not making the difference. Tom is ongoing. Our guest today has been Pete Radigan, who, along with his heart donor's mother, Janet Mock, has written a new book about their donation story called From Tragedy to Triumph, The Story of Tom's Heart. From Tragedy to Triumph, The Story of Tom's Heart is available through Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Apple Books, and Kobo Books. Thank you all again for being here. Thank you all. And if you have any questions for us, please call 501-907-9150. And if you're ready to make a life-restoring decision and register to become an organ, tissue, and eye donor, go to DonateLifeArkansas.org. Radiate is a production of Aurora and is hosted by Audrey Coleman, Aurora's Director of Communications.